here we are. <laughs> Protection Breakfast Club. Uh, our episode is under pressure with Danielle here. I know we got. I'm laughing. I got to tell people because everyone would think I'm crazy because I laugh at the beginning of every episode. But we've got a running joke that Andy starts every episode with, "Here we are." And then he explained to me that that's very deliberate. I thought it was just kind of like a quirk, but it turns out I don't know if you want to explain why, Andy, but you're doing it on purpose. My favorite Instagram handle is what? What is it called? Another food review page. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm you know, shout out to that Instagram amping up, the, amping up this guy. I love his page. He reviews restaurants in New Jersey. It's one of my favorite pages. He's sincere. He loves food. I love his page. So he always starts with, "All right, we're here." <laughs> oh my! And he's standing in front of like some like you know two star restaurant every time. And it, actually, I don't know, but like kind of shopping mall restaurants. I don't know stuff. the star level, but they're probably Michelin rated and stuff. I don't know, but um, it's loves, a cool. Loves food it, and loves his job. It's a cool, it's a cool Instagram account. Shout out to him. Yeah. It, it's funny. Um, before we get into like guests and stuff, Andy, I wanted to talk. I wanted to ask you, like, um, obviously, I'm I'm wearing the Salesforce hoodie today. Um, like, uh, what do you think about the Slack deal? I think it's awesome. I mean, I think like you and I have talked about this offline, online. You know, we have a lot of respect for Salesforce. Clearly, you worked there. Yeah. Uh, at my last company, they invested in our company and were partners with us. And so a lot of experience with their thinking and their thinking is always really sound. They do a lot of acquisitions, but they all make sense to me. They all fit together. They're complicated and difficult to fit together. So it takes a lot of time and engineering work, I think, for them to make sure that all of those things fit together. And I think like some people like to criticize like the length of time and the, and the way the integrations play together. And I just think like over time, they solve those problems. I mean, every every company has challenges like that. And they've just done a nice job in, in, in just one person's opinion of like making choices that are bold but thoughtful and make sense around a suite of products and services that just make sense. And they make sense for business users and, and chatter, which is a feature inside Salesforce is not, is not, um, is used, but not highly used now that Slack is around. And I think like, it's not just about replacing chatter. I think, you know, my opinion, I'm not in that deal. I'm not in the company. You probably know more than me, but my sitting on the outside, you look at that and you just go awesome. They're going to own the workplace. And I yeah. just think that's really clear to me. They're gonna they're gonna do what it takes to own kind of sales driven workplaces, and and Slack is an incredible way to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with almost all of that. Like, first of all, I'm biased because I love Salesforce. You know, like I, Salesforce is a great company. I, I I worked there until the other day, and um, and you know, I didn't always. I was there during the Tableau acquisition and some other big ones, um, and I didn't always understand the rationale of how things were gonna fit. But it was always revealed to me, right? Like, especially with Tableau, like I didn't, I got there right when that was happening, and um, and I didn't see it. I didn't understand why it was going on. You know, by the time I left, it all made sense to me. Not that anybody needs to convince Tableau me of was, anything. Tableau was interesting because we talked about that at the time, also. Yeah. And I think MuleSoft happened at the time you were there, also. Aroundish, yeah, yeah, yeah. MuleSoft happened, and right away you go, "Well, that one makes sense to me." But yeah. Integrator integrating a lot of different systems. Well, that makes a ton of sense for a Salesforce right out of the shoot. Whereas Tableau, you you have to you stop and think about it. it's a huge acquisition, yeah. a lot of data, and you stop and think about it, and then when it's revealed to you, yeah, yeah, it, it certainly makes sense. Um, and there's there's I was talking with somebody about this today. There are people that think on a scale that we don't think. No, I think that's, that's, right. that's the thing. I never, you know, we never in our minds cooked up, oh, well, Salesforce should buy Slack. Like <laughs> there are people thinking on levels we can't think on, you know, like how do I get to a quadrillion dollars? Those are the levels <laughs> some people are thinking on. And, you know, I'm not, I'm trying to, you know, get a contract done. It's interesting because I mean, before Salesforce, I was obviously at Oracle. And I remember early on in my time at Oracle, you know, there's a lot of talk out in the world about Oracle acquiring Salesforce, right? Like how that made some sense. And I, I, I personally didn't think it did. And obviously that never happened. But, um, you know, I think there's a place for Oracle and a place for Salesforce in the marketplace. And they compete in some ways, but they're complementary in others. And there's plenty of room for both. But um, 
with respect to Salesforce, going back to Slack, like it, it wasn't intuitive for me, right? Like I was like, it, it, mo- I was like, what? But to your point about chatter, it does make sense. It's the evolution, the next step, right? Like we use chatter when I worked at Salesforce. I, obviously, as a Salesforce tool, we use it every day, and it worked just fine. But Slack is another dimension of that, right? Like you have Slack also. Yeah, um, I, I think some folks at Salesforce use Slack. Um, I didn't. I used um, Google, whatever Google's product is. I forget. I don't what know called. exactly a ton about how Chatter works, but what's so amazing to me about Slack is all the things that you can build into it. I mean, the chat function, it's fun to use, which they've figured out how to make it fun, which is yeah. great. And they've figured out how to build apps into it. And that when you start thinking about like a system that's that easy, to, to work to operate apps off of then then you start thinking about salesforce and then you start to go okay i can really see how this makes sense like yeah yeah and it'll be look it, slack's going to come with a lot of data privacy challenges that are going to be new to salesforce and you know salesforce is one of those companies i trust i know they'll figure out how to do the right thing it would just be great to watch what happens all this being said i work at facebook now you know what's interesting i didn't even know well, I knew about, but I had never had experience with like Facebook's like kind of a workplace chatter program. It's called Workplace. Um, Andy, if learning curve, like Apple did something amazing and, is, and it's why the iPhone is what it is today, which is there's zero learning curve for anyone who understands the language in which the iPhone is operating in front of them, whether it's English, Spanish, or Mandarin. If you if you can read, you can learn how to operate an iPhone in five minutes. Learning curve is nothing. I don't have to go take a class. I don't have to figure out how to do, you know, it's not Microsoft Excel, which you can make a career out of figuring out how to use and still get it wrong. Um, Slack is a good iteration of that, although Slack does have some learning curve. For me, it did. I use Slack. Slack's not, Slack's got some esoterics to it. This workplace chat tool, and shout out to Facebook is where I work. I mean, you know, kind of like, uh, whatever it's a plug, but it's amazing. I zero learning. You know why? Because it works just like public Facebook does. Right. And so I just was able to hop in and use it. And I've had zero time spent like figuring out how to do it. I really like it. So anyway, I say that all to say that it's cool that there are like multiple tools out in the ecosystem, Slack, Workplace from Facebook and all the other, and um, Google's got an offering teams. Like we've it's good. We're, we're fortunate in the sense that we're, we're not so old that we've grown up with these technologies where, where we've slowly seen email be replaced. When I was at yeah. Ameritrade, we used um, whatever Microsoft early version of Messenger was. Yeah. Started chat, like IMing people. And that started to be where I was interacting with people at Ameritrade. And then when you, when you move companies, you know, you maybe iterate into different technologies and Slack now is kind of like, I think, you know, pretty, pretty popular in the market. And, and I'm not surprised at all that that as we move through generations are getting used to this and email is being pushed aside i don't like email as much as me neither man and so i think we we talk about this with danielle which is an interesting you know our guest on the show about like generational differences in using technology and what they expect from their technology and we've just come to expect something different no i agree with you i you know again at salesforce we had salesforce owns quip so we use a combination of quip some email and then the Google, God, I forget what they changed the name of it, whatever Google's like Teams equivalent is. Yep. And what I saw was just a, a big decrease, especially even over time as people implemented those tools more and more into their daily workflow, that email just decreased. Coming here, most communication that I've done in the last few weeks since I've been here is off email and I love it. I, I couldn't be happier. I use a combination of Quip and the chat program and, um, and, uh, and obviously video and like, my email volume is as low as I've seen it in a long time. And I hope it stays that way because email is annoying. So great. Yeah. Shout out, shout out to email. Yeah. Shout out to email. Farewell to email. of the past. <laughs> email, the old, look, there's a lot of utility for email, but like, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the medium for the future, if that makes sense. Well, we got to get to our conversation with Daniel. Yeah. Like, I know she's your, I know you guys are friends, um, like, uh, and I, you've talked about how awesome she is, man. Like, how'd you guys meet? Uh, I mean, I met her at Tech GC, I think. I mean, she's from Boston. She lives, mm-hmm. you, until recently, she lived about five minutes from my house, um, nice. the same town I live in. She's since moved, and you'll, we'll see when we talk to her, the, the view that she's at, uh, 
um, she's renting a house while they like they're moving somewhere um, different and uh, you know so I got to be I got to be friends with her through you know Boston GC circles and I'm just really impressed by it's, I, like she's deep on privacy like we are as a GC that's focused on privacy but I mean as as as, as the everyone will see uh, she has an acumen for picking up um, what I appreciate is picking up all of the nuance like she, she picks up all of the, the depth and nuance that's required of being a GC outside of the technical job. The, the lawyering part is the easy part. The, all of the managing people, managing personalities, managing shifting priorities. We called the episode under pressure because there's, she operates uh, uh, under an intense amount of pressure. A cybersecurity company, she was the GC of a cybersecurity company. They had security you know concerns all the time they ran tabletop exercises like there's a lot of a lot of stuff that that she's um really adept at kind of managing things uh as they come and, and understanding the nuance which is what i i appreciate man i'm looking forward to to meeting her and, and, and talking about all this stuff she sounds amazing yeah yeah all right he's gonna laugh because I, I always go here we are yeah. <laughs> Data Protection Breakfast Club with our friend Danielle Shear, who's the general counsel of Bottom Line Technologies. And uh, Pedro, we, we picked Under Pressure, which is one of my favorite songs. What a jam. Um, Danielle's been under pressure many times in, in her career working for a cybersecurity company, IPO, all sorts of stuff that we can touch on and cover. And um, and also we, we, we sort of often open up with like how we met. And I remember seeing you speak at Tech GC in New York City um, and talk about your IPO experience and about um, the way you had to have that conversation with your CEO. And I wanna get into that in a little bit because I think that's a super interesting story. And it's, it's really relatable for lawyers that have like had to go through things that they had never gone through before that are really big and really encompassing and challenging. So I'll stop there, but Pedro usually Maybe have a little intro question. Yeah, I've got a super cool question. I can see the waves crashing back there. Um, let's talk about where you are and what's going on. I saw a bird. Like, this is the best. We've seen some cool, innovative backgrounds, Andy, but like this one's pretty strong. Real. That's what makes And it's real. Yeah. So where are you? And what is that? Like, what's happening back there? Yeah, so I'm, I'm on Egypt Beach right now in Situate. Um, nice. I was bored out of my mind during COVID, I decided to uproot my family and move because why not, right? There wasn't like enough in the world. And so we actually don't have a house to live in. So we rented a house in Situate, off season by the way, so pretty good rates. And nice. well, I'm a little nervous though, because when it snows, it could be a little, you know, dicey. The house is in piers, so all the pipes are under the house. Wow. During high tide, the ocean flows under the house. It's like such a great experience and you fall asleep every night listening to the waves. So um, yeah, I just needed something new, you know? I was I was a little tired of myself. It's pretty amazing view back there. I know it's hard to see right now, but a minute ago, it was perfect. And um, yeah, that I don't know how I feel about the waves under the house. I, I get the soothing audio effect, but that would just scare me. But yeah. maybe I'm, I'm a coward, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, let's dig in a little bit here. Um, so, Danielle, maybe um, give us a sense for like initially just how you transitioned into a corporate role and kind of what that was like. And I know you did like, I think you did like corporate securities work at a law firm, a big law firm. And and everybody knows that leaving that life is a good decision. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I'm I'm an escapee from big law in Manhattan. Um, which was great experience. It's sort of like the only other way I've heard it described is freshman year of college. It's like one of the best experiences you ever want to repeat again. Right. So, good. Tremendous experience. And, um, and I did a lot of M&A and a lot of securities work. And what I felt like was at the end of all of my M&A transactions, I really kind of missed the people I was working with, the CFOs. And there weren't a lot of in-house back then, uh, legal teams. And I just... You know, I, I I cared about the context behind the contracts I was diligencing or the exec comp stuff we were working on. And people at my firm thought I was nuts because you know, it didn't matter what the context was. It just the facts were for the deal. But 
but I really cared about the history behind it. So I, I kind of knew I belonged in a company. And um, by luck and fate, I got connected with a serial entrepreneur who was on his sixth company. And he, uh, he wanted to take this company public. I don't think anything mattered except, you know, his own desire to take a company public. He hadn't taken any, any other public. And, um, you know, completely honest, um, I think he and the 50 people who, who were at the company at the time were pretty terrified about adding a lawyer to their roster. Um, I, I didn't know at the time, everybody's like a lawyer or a banker, but people need lawyers, <laughs> especially engineers. Lawyers <laughs> like people helping you get out of a ticket or divorce, right? And so when I joined Harvard, like, um, one, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing because, you know, I had had a handful of years at a big law firm, which is very different than house counsel. And two, um, nobody trusts And that makes it really difficult to be successful as a company's lawyer. So I spent a number of years trying to figure out what my place was and, um, you know, what my role was in a company to help it succeed great experience. I mean, at this point, it's like 12 years ago. Um, and like you said, by the time I ended, we were over 2,000 employees globally, and we were a public company. So that was just, a, just great. Really lucky. Did you come in as the general counsel sitting on the executive team and came in that way? And so had, or, or did you come in at a different point? No, I title was house counsel on my original offer letter. And um, in the eight to 10 months before we were uh, going to go public, um, it was pretty clear to me that the company was going to need a general counsel. And uh, I, uh, I needed business cards. And I mentioned to somebody who didn't seem to give a shit at the time. I don't know. Can we curse on? Yeah, yeah, no. Please Pedro curse. does every episode. <laughs> Pedro does every day. Andy, that's a dry snitch. I don't like that. I say every episode, not every day. I mean, I'm sure you do every I, day. I curse, even when I think I curse. Please proceed. So in-house counsel, I was like, that's not a title. I think I mentioned it to HR. I'm the only lawyer here. That's like the general counsel, right? Like general stuff counsel. So I'm going to put that on my business card. And they're like, okay. Because like, you know, at that point, there's a hundred and something people there and like nobody gives a shit. Yeah. After we went public, people started to give a shit. <laughs> And, um, and there was, a, you know, you mentioned this, I told this story at a tech GC conference. Um, I did a lot of, you know, as you can imagine, I did a lot of work in a lead up to the IPO. I'd had a good amount of experience as an associate um, but on the other side of it, but I was by no means a, a capable, talented, capable company general counsel. And here we are, the company that I'm at is going public. And um, the question was asked, are we going to hire a real general counsel? It was asked. <laughs> and um, there were some people who were really for hiring uh, a heavyweight. And uh, I, I, I had a conversation with the CEO, the founder CEO, and he was the one who brought me in. And I said, listen, if you wanna go hire yourself a real general counsel, I can't disagree with that because I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with company GC. Um, but make me part of that process. Like, don't make, don't let it happen to me. Like, make me part of it. And if there's not a role for me here, then you know I'll, I'll transition out. And if there is a role for me under a public company, from that's awesome. Anyway, he looked completely shocked and really upset. <clears throat> I had heard that some of these conversations were happening, but apparently he's not part of them. And he had said, "I have no intention of putting anybody over you, um, but I do need." go make friends with a handful of public company GCs and find out what night and make sure it keeps you up at night. And I, I was like, uh, I, I can do that. And um, I went out and I made friends with three public company GCs who became incredibly close friends and mentors to me over the past decade. And, um, and I figured out how to be a public company GC. And I love who were, those, who were those mentors and how did you 
pick them and kind of like, what did you get from each of them? Yeah. Um, so um, the three mentors, I don't think I could have picked better mentors, to be honest. And it was all by luck and chance. Um, the first one uh, was Roland. Uh, and he was at, um, oh my God, Tech Target at the time. Um, the set, and he, now he's over and he's a principal at, um, you know, one of the law firms, law firms in town that helps, which is a great model. Uh, the second one was Scott Semmel. Um, and he's like a battlefield GC. He's been through so much and he's seen so much. Um, and the third one was Paul Dacier at EMC. Mm-hmm. And these three guys uh, have such tremendous experience and they became confidants of mine. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I needed, not templates or models, which you can either search for in ACC or like a tech GC or get from outside counsel. I needed like the hard advice um, on, you know, agendas of different executives on the sometimes rotating door of executives and how that can really stall a company um, and on dicey in the gray issues. Um, and they were always there for me and they continue to be there for me, all three of them. In fact, Scott Semmel um, ended up replacing me as interim GC in the last 90 days of Carbonite sale to open text while I went on and took the bottom line GC job. That's so important so important to have that um not just in the public company context just in general like anyone you can bounce stuff off of but as you noted this is for the stickiest of questions you know it's it's best served that way Uh, it's best served by i have no idea what to do with this this particular issue and i think like as a lawyer when you're young and you come out of school and you start working and, and you're just like you think I don't think I'm alone in this. I think you think you need the answer to everything. I think that you're expected to have that answer. And once you realize that that's not the case at all, it was so freeing for me to realize that I didn't have to know everything. I feel like I learned that really late. I mean, I spent a lot of time feeling very insecure that I didn't know the answers to any number of a hundred questions that got posed to me today. That's crazy. You know, no one person can answer a variety of different issues. I think the general counsel is supposed to be able to play a lot of different positions on the field because you have the ability to have different um, and you know how to get help and you know how to, you know, you know how to filter it through your brain so that you don't come out with a CYA memo or you can choose the blue pill or the red pill. You're like, look, I think we should choose the, the blue pill because this is, this is how we can move forward and be successful. I'll let you know there's a red pill here. And here, if you wanted to go it that way, here's, but this is what I recommend. You know what I mean? Because people want to move forward. I'll tell you though, um, when I started as the first, uh, what my first in-house job and as the only lawyer in the company, I would, I remember running down the hall with my hair on fire because the FBI was on the phone and they wanted to deliver, you know, uh, some, 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 some like an evidence request. But I had never spoken to the FBI my only experience with the FBI is in some of the dramas I watch on TV. This is in 2009. I'm like, the FBI is on the phone. What are we going to do? And, you know, fast forward a decade, I'm dealing with FISA warrants. And my hair's not on fire. It's just something you do. Yeah. We don't talk about FISA warrants in America. (laughs) It's all very quiet. I've got a question for you. Um, Can you remember and talk about a time where you got when you were figuring out how to do all this or even more recently we just got it wrong and and how you fix that because it's inevitable i guess oh that's a really good question i hate to talk about things i got wrong i'm just kidding <laughs> me too yeah yeah no it's a really good question um a time when i just got it wrong um trying to think if there is you told a story about insurance that was interesting. You could talk about that story. I've heard that story from you before about, um, didn't you do like a review of your cybersecurity insurance and there was some like the board member called you out on it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. this is wrong, but you know. I got that right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I honestly, the, I think 
times when I've gotten things wrong the most, which is an ongoing growth exercise for me, is um, prioritizing being right over being effective. And, you know, relationships matter, influencing people matters, giving people an opportunity to collaborate and have a voice. And, you know, ultimately being fine that the way you think things should go, even if it's simpler, even if it's less expensive, even if it feels better, may not be the way it happens. And you don't need to like, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, you, you, you don't need to like, um, like balls to the wall, like get it the way you want it. Right. And, and that's, 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 a, I've always struggled with that because I kind of very clearly see the formula for how something can get done easily. And I have a really difficult time with things that are inefficient um, because I don't want to waste my time. Right. Um, but sometimes I think when you're in a leadership position, unless you're going to play everybody's part, everybody's position, you kind of have to let those things fly and you got to let the dust settle on their own. I struggle with that a lot. It's funny, you know, I, I literally, I think we have the same DNA because I always, when we're deciding what to do and, and different jobs that I've been in, like when I've been in a leadership role, like we'll decide, okay, this is the way forward. And at the same time, I formulate how to get there in my head, but the folks on my team who are going to do it essentially come up with a totally different way to do it. And early on, I'd be like, no, this is the way to do it because this is the way my brain said to do it. And that's the way we're going to do it. Um, and what I found that not only am I wrong sometimes, it's actually, there are way better ways to do it than the way I thought of, but letting people exercise that creative muscle, even if they learn along the way that maybe your path was better or whatever, makes them just overall more effective. Um, uh, or they come, come up with a better way. Or they come up with a better way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's going to be a lifelong journey for me, though. Yeah, well, it's definitely humbled me a few times in a good way because I need that. And like, uh, people have surprised me. Like Andy said, people are smart, and so trusting them is important. I came to this reality, you know, which is like through learning from people that were working for me. You know, when you hire someone, you get psyched up because you know, especially when it's one of your first, you know people helping you and joining your team and you and maybe you have more experience than them and you think that you can impart wisdom to them and you can you know show them the way and this is how I've always done it and and then if you find the right person they're pushing back on you and they're challenging you in the right way and I still say to this day Zarina who I hired at DataZoo like I learned as much from her as she learned from me and I just didn't realize how important that would be until later um and that's it's like got to learn by by making um making good decisions and making bad decisions and 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 uh but that was one that really worked out and since then tried to i've tried to do that to keep doing that it's not I, have a, I have a good story of a mistake pedro um so uh this is this is just i mean this still stings me to this day so one of the things that i learned how to do uh early in my you know GC career was to create machines because I can't possibly remember everything, especially after having my kids, like my memory is totally shot. I can barely remember what I need to buy at the grocery store later. Everything has to be written down. Um, but you need machines that will outlive you at a company, right? Machines for everything. And eventually it just starts working itself. Well, I had not created a machine for, um, for, um, insider trading transactions that might end up being um, sales matchable transactions. You guys know what I'm talking about. So, like, if a um, if a um, if a, a certain if an equity grant vests for a named executive officer, and um, and then within six months sells, and, you know that transaction is matchable for for short swing transaction purposes. And if there is any profit, that profit needs to be forged to the company. And there are um, plaintiff's attorneys who just troll these form fours and look for that. And then they want like a thousand dollars a pop for fine to get in writing a series of nasty notes. So, I mean, it's a question, you know, whose responsibility is that? Is that the equity teams to watch it? Is it the finance teams? Is it the legal team? I mean, I think it's kind of like, I haven't heard a good answer to that. I think it's kind of, if nobody's responsible, if it's, if nobody's responsible for it, then like nobody's responsible for it, right? If no, if nobody's assigned to it, 
I had to ask a CEO to write a $25,000 check to disgorge profits because we didn't tell him not to sell. And uh, that was painful. And that's a, that's a hard way to learn. You need a machine for that. Yeah, that, that sounds like it's done a little bit. Um, but you did the right thing and it worked out. So that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, like both of you guys being GCs, like I, I don't know, weaving this, weaving privacy into this, like I don't know how you think about all of that stuff that I, is a black box for me. I, you know, I don't know. Um, and just this sprawling challenge that is managing like your customer's data, plus you're in the, you know, you're in the business of data processing anyway. So like, how do you find time or do you hire experts to keep you posted? Like, how do you balance the privacy? Uh, I don't even know what to call it. The privacy uh, workload that we all have with all this other stuff that I don't understand. So my answer to that's going to be a little unique and it's probably going to be more similar to Andy's than some of the other people you guys talk to. I love privacy work. I love it. And so I spend 80% of my time thinking about it. It's where I go to first, like the short swing stuff, like the public company compliance, the governance contracts. That's like, I, I have to, my brain needs to go there when it needs to go there. Cause it's on my to-do list, but my whole life privacy. So let me explain. Um, first of all, I'm an incredibly paranoid person. And I think everyone starts with that. Um, and then when I was in law school, I had a great professor, Mark Rodenberg, who's the head of it. And um, I, he turned me on to all of this. <clears throat> at at it, where I went, I had to do a thesis to graduate. And the thesis I did was on privacy in our bodies um, as it relates to the new backscatter machines that were just being put up in the airports. And at the time when I was in school, they were just testing them out. People could they went through the metal detectors or the backscatter machines. And I interviewed people over a course of a week at um, Reagan National Airport who chose to go through the backscatter machines because the lines were longer at the metal detector so people might've wanted to go through faster. I got kicked out of Reagan twice, by the way, um, for this work. And, um, and, and I, I just was, I'm just obsessed with the topic. So um, I, another kind of good thing is that the entire regulatory legal has changed. I've come of age in my career. So it's not something I felt like I had to catch up on. When I was a young associate and there were all of these specialties like HSR or exec comp or, you know, whatever, all the patent troll work that was happening. I felt like I was late to the party and I was like, well, what, what, you know, what's, what's my thing going to be? What's my specialty going to be? And it just, you know, actually turns out if you spend some time thinking about what you enjoy, you might be able to match that with something that's changing the world. And for me, that was privacy and data security. So, I mean, I'm a complete nutcase. All of my credit is frozen, right? If anybody needs help freezing their credit real fast, they can tell you to do that. Um, and I mean, I really am careful about my identity management. We picked the wrong song, Andy. We should have picked something about being paranoid and being watched. I'm sure there's some great 80s classic. There's Paranoid um, by... Um... Ozzy Osbourne. There you go. <laughs> not my favorite. Not my cup of tea. <laughs> Are we going to eat a bat during this episode? That is a question. Yeah. And um, let me tell you why it's so helpful on the job. Because so much of, if unless you really internalize the impact of um, like a data breach and really understand it personally, these regulations and these laws, and they're fast and furious and more and more keep coming out, you don't really, you, you really don't, you really can't think about them practically, right? So a couple of years ago when a new data breach was being announced, I mean, it's still happening now, but at the beginning when a new data breach was being announced every other day um, and you know, people would wake up and they'd be like, wow, Home Depot's security is really shitty, right? Like Target's security is really, PJ Maxx is, oh my God, they must not care about this at all. I started, and I mean, Andy, well, working to change the narrative a little bit just by talking amongst our network and talking on the circuit that these people shouldn't be bad for their bad security. They're victims of a world that has changed and we do not yet have the tools to, um, to, re, to, to re-engineer how we've all been working. And um, you, re you need to internalize how privacy 
and a breach will affect you personally and your family personally, and then sort of apply that to your business. And then you start to understand the spirit behind these regulations. And I think everything kind of falls neatly in place from there. It's especially true when you are working in a company and, and representing that client and the, the, what you're seeing is, as you noted, data breaches happening with big brands. And I remember uh, attending an event. Pedro, it might have been the one you and I spoke at the first time we met. There was another piece of that event where there was a social scientist talking about data that he had looked at with um, stock prices of companies that had had huge data breaches and the impact over time. And it was literally imperceptible. Like, so the public does not care. Like they do momentarily, they care, they, they read a headline. And, and so if you're in, sitting inside that company, I agree, Danielle, like you have to frame it differently because if you don't feel your stock price is going to get hurt by that, then you've got to feel some other way about it and you've got to resolve it because there needs to be another, another reason to do that. The human interest would be a great one, but I'm sure there are others like just protecting yourself against regulatory issues or, or other things. But um, I thought that was especially interesting and, and, and that came, that flowed, that came to me early through my boss at Ameritrade, who's the chief privacy officer. When you have a lot of financial data, that's really about the person and the client. We had all these clients and all their financial data and their vested interest at heart. And so for us, it was way more about that than the, the stock breach. You just don't, or the data breach, you just don't want to lose your clients. <laughs> Right, the trust. And then there's a, gl a global aspect of it, the global cultural aspect, which is you said, like, most people don't care about a data breach, but that's a very U.S. right? In the rest of the world, they feel about the right to privacy the way we feel about the right to free speech. Yeah. But the theme is not true in reverse. And if you are a global company, you have to deal with both of those things. I think that's a good comparison. Well, let me ask this, though, because I tend to agree with the premise that, like, the data breach sensationalism of a few years ago, which is now dead, didn't really, it didn't have a lot of longevity, right? Like to your point, Andy, like people just, nobody stopped shopping at Target because of the credit card data breach or Home Depot or any, or any, you know, TJ Maxx or whatever. So fast forward to now where like, whereas a few years ago, the kind of media obsession was with bad actors stealing your stuff due to compromises in security now those hyper focuses on the actual companies themselves and how they're using the data, like the, the, and, and who they're willingly sharing it with and for what purpose. That's the new obsession in the media and you know by regulators or whatever. We talked about this on the last podcast, I think, Andy, which was like, well, how much does the public really care about all of this now? And I'm interested to hear from you, like what you think, um, whether this is similar to the data breach wars of a couple of years ago and will pass or whether the like new obsession with how companies themselves are monetizing and leveraging the data they collect, whether that's going to have a little bit more of like sticking power as an issue. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a really good question. I think that it's generational. So I think um, like my parents, for example, they're never going to get this, but not really. And um, they're, they're not going to, I mean, I don't, they're not going to read privacy policies. They're not going to go search and see what this company is going to use their data. But I do think that there is a generation of, of people, and I'm not, I, I do think it's cultural as well, like US versus Europe, whatever. But I think there's a generation of people who expect and are growing up to expect certain disclosure. And when you don't see that disclosure, it's just weird. So, you know, for example, if you're driving through a new neighborhood and there are no street lights and there are no street signs, um, that feels a little stranger when you're driving through a new neighborhood and there are street signs and there are street, street lights. And when, you're, when you get to a new neighborhood, you get off an exit on a highway or somewhere and you end up in a dark place that just doesn't look like the rest of the places you normally drive in, your spidey sense goes up. You know, I, I have a point, I promise. But um, when um, companies started um, sending out disclosures um, on you know, the cookie disclosure, for example, if you were one of the companies and you did business outside the U.S. and didn't send out an update, like you acknowledge that we can accept cookies, you look a little budget. How many websites do you go to and you don't click on that? It's just like, oh, is this safe? And so I do think there's going to be a generation of people who don't, it's not obvious to them, but it will be obvious if you are not disclosing. 
what you're supposed to be disclosing. And I think it's just going to be a new way of living. Um, this is not, I don't think this is um, earth shattering. It's all about disclosure, all about being upfront and transparent about what a company is doing with your data. The problem is, is these companies didn't start that way. And so you have to go back and figure it out. And that's really, really hard because a lot of companies don't know what data they're collecting, right? I remember at a certain point at Carbonite, we had a new head of engineering and he asked a great question. Like, I want a list of all We didn't have that. So somebody made a list of all the assets under management, all of the servers, you know, all everything. And he couldn't figure out what 10 servers we're doing connected to either production environments or test environments like you just couldn't figure it out and we were in a staff meeting and he said we're going to shut them off and i mean people went ballistic you're going to shut them off what if that affects the cash register what if that affects customers he's like we're going to shut them off and see who screams because we have to know what these assets are doing those accidents and uh you know look i think that was the right answer uh, this that your that line of discussion calls to to calls to mind an interesting question about what Apple is doing. More of a privacy question. Like, as Apple changes, I think it's iOS fourteen has like this requirement that I Pedro maybe get, gets this more than me, but like basically you're gonna have to opt in a lot on apps. Um, do you think there's an interesting point you raised, Danielle, about like the the way maybe a certain generation will view a website and view an app experience when they open up that app experience, they're going to be, maybe, maybe they're going to be like comforted by seeing all the pop-ups and the disclosures and all that stuff, because they're going to be like, okay, this is a legit app. I know I have to do this. They're going to get used to it over time. I don't know if that's the case. I don't think anybody right now people like, are losing their mind. Yeah, about let me, let me, I'm, I'm going to push back on that one because like <laughs> when you buy a PlayStation five and it takes two hours to get to the game, nobody likes that. You endure that to get to where you want to go. There has to be a better way to keep people informed about data processing versus creating a bunch of doors they have to unlock while they wait in anticipation for whatever experience they're actually trying to get to. Interestingly enough, like that's one of my critiques about the Apple approach. It's kind of, you know, it's a sweeping approach that imposes, first of all, some pretty burdensome requirements on uh, all apps, many of which are small and don't have a tremendous like, you know, resources and expertise to do all what they're being asked to do. And then secondly, while the intention I think is good, which is like to increase transparency and, 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 and control for the consumer, how much control do I really have, Andy, at the beginning when I'm trying to load my PlayStation and I'm pencil whipping and just clicking through everything just to get there? Like, am I really exercising informed decision making by doing that? Probably not. So then what's the purpose? If we know that the behavior towards non in real time prompts is generally to just click through it till you get to where you want to go, then what purpose is it really serving other than your own corporate psychological insurance? I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. I don't think the game is to both lead the horse to water and make it drink. And that is the end drink part of it. I don't think you need to barrage people with app prompts and force them to pay attention. I do think that we need companies to disclose things in non-obfuscated you know, obfuscated ways. And I don't think we've gotten there yet. Like it can't be that to lay out in plain English, this is the data we collect and this is what we're doing with it. That's it. And we talk, yeah, we talk about this a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's got to be somewhere that's easy to find. And it's got to be UX. Like, and we have to talk about privacy UX. And Pedro, I, maybe I'm, I don't, I don't like this phrase, but I'm beating a dead horse or banging the drum on like. <laughs> I'm hitting animals. Why are you always, I like that she wanted to feed and water the yeah. horse. Why are you beating the horse? See, my wife, my wife is a vegetarian, and 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 so like, <laughs> it's dead. Why are you beating this dead animal? Uh, well, I don't want to use that phrase, and we actually always in my house come up with alternatives to those <laughs> phrases, and I'm I'm upset with myself that I didn't come up with one, so I won't do that. But like, we talk about privacy UX a lot. It's an area where there's just shitty innovation. Like, yeah. thinking about it. Danielle, we are like totally all saying the same thing. Like 
talk to the consumers better. Like it's not that hard. <laughs> and but not just that though. Like it it, be. I think every developer and every company should be able to do that on brand. Like meaning not every company has the same voice. I honestly, me personally, when I'm interacting with my uh, investment bank for my retirement, I don't want goofy cartoons and, and like super happy, like, hey, Pedro, good to see you again. Here's a snow cone em emoji. I don't want any of that. I want the bank to feel really formal and serious. And I know the bank knows that. And so that's how they communicate with me. Translate now to like Snapchat or TikTok or Facebook or wherever. I want a completely different experience. I don't want to feel like I'm at my bank when I'm on Facebook or when I'm on Snapchat. And so we have to create frameworks that say, hey, here's what the general requirements are, but simultaneously allow companies to engage with their customers in the appropriate tone, voice, and on brand. And I don't think one company, because it has control of a platform, should dictate to everyone else what that looks like. So I don't think it's hard, like Andy said, but I don't think that's why it's not happening. I agree, it's incredibly easy. The reason it's not happening is because the last thing for sale is all of us, right? Sure. And so until regulations stop the sale of our data, which is what I think is happening with you know GDPR and in other parts of the world, until that is the law, like you are only allowed to collect data for the purpose of the um, purchase that the customer is making from you. That's gotta be the law, right? And then it's very easy to say, all right, this is, we collect your data and this is what we do with it. But it's not the law yet, right? Now, our, we are for sale. And the data that we give to a company is um, monetizable for lots of reasons that have nothing to do with, you know, doing business with a bank. And that's why it needs to be, and that's why they don't want to disclose it in a simple way, right? So I think the, to me, the answer is the Let's protect consumers by changing the law and saying, when I buy something and I give you my information, you promise that you'll only use it for the reason that I'm buying something. Just stop all that other crap. And then the disclosure gets really easy. And then there's no tricks to the disclosure. There's no need to have a trick. That sounds great. Except the challenge, I think, with that approach, if it's applied too broadly, is we always think about this issue, like, for example, in the context of advertising, which is framed as a nuisance. But forget advertising for a second. If you narrowly do, if you're a one trick pony app, we're sticking with the horse theme here. <laughs> you're a one trick pony app, but you wanna become a two trick pony app and that's your long-term plan, then you have to be able to have a healthy conversation with your customer about how to do that. And in my opinion, the best way to do it is to ask for the, a little bit broader ability to leverage the data you're collecting assuming that advertising is not even involved, right? Like, which is what everybody points to as annoying. Um, and so if you say, I only collect the app for this one purpose, excuse me, the data for this one purpose, and then this is what my app does. If you want to evolve that app, it becomes really difficult because now you got to go back and say, before we can even decide whether this is a cool idea or it's going to work, I need to ask you for a favor. I need to let you lend me some stuff so that I can figure out if this is cool and then I'll sell it to you or make it available to All you. Right. Or I agree with you. And there's grayness there. But do you think that there is some way to get culturally people aligned that if I give you my data and my money in return for this product, you'll use my data to deliver that product and maybe tell me about other services I might be interested in? Is there a difference between that and like what Facebook does with their data? Uh, is there a difference? I, I'm not sure I follow. Yeah. It, so I guess what I'm asking is, is couldn't there, it, it, um, is there a way not to make it so narrow? Is there a way not to make it so broad? Oh, I see. Like, a, yeah, I think so. And I, but I think that requires some experimentation, not pres prescription, right? Like, yeah. not like this, like, well, we are this ivory tower, you know, DPA or whatever. And here's what we're going to do. Because you know what? The people in the ivory tower didn't build a business, didn't change the world, didn't do any of these things, right? They're reacting to things they don't like. And I think creating rules from a position of annoyance is never helpful. I totally agree. But are you going to have the foxes guard the hen house then? 
Well, it's not that. I think a more collaborative, experimental approach is probably the best way to get to an outcome that both A, serves better privacy for human beings all around the world, and B, doesn't just kill the ability to continue to innovate and create cool stuff that people like. I think it comes down to features and performance. Like you can get away with a lot of stuff if your product is really good and you're innovating and you're being clear about what you're doing, experimentation, like Instagram as a, as a, as a general uh, platform does a really nice job. I think of like using data, being experimental, showing you what they're doing um, and, and having some, uh, clarity around how they're how they're maybe utilizing data, uh, but but it's not perfect, you know. And, and neither neither are our, our other platforms that you'd look at and say, well, they're ubiquitous in my life, like Google or, yeah. or something that is like Apple, like where where I am bought in on those technologies. They make yeah. my life way easier. I'm in, and so um, keep innovating and keep me interested, and then. Yeah then I'm, I'm motivated to let you use my data, especially if you're telling me, oh, there's something cool we're trying. Check it out. And back to the point, I think, I think Danielle made um, about do people care? I think we all made it. Um, look at TikTok. Like TikTok to me is the test case for people don't care about this. Like, yeah. Meaning like you, China and all this garbage. And it, I didn't see TikTok. I mean, yeah, maybe for a minute, like the example you gave about Target or whatever, people were like, oh, what's up with TikTok? But look at what's the top app on, you know, what's the top app in the app store? Like it's, it's not one, it's two, right? And it's been that way consistently all year long. Um, people adopt it for the reason you said, Andy, because TikTok is cool and you have fun. And, and that is always the principal driver for behavior. In, do I feel like I'm getting value from doing this? Privacy seems to me, and I'm not a social scientist, to be a secondary concern for the public, but it's a primary concern for like the ivory tower types. Oh yeah, they don't want to see that parachute. I even have an Apple pen. How pathetic am I as a human being? <laughs> we have to wrap up here, and, uh, and Danielle, you need to just like get back to looking out your window. Yeah. <laughs> you there. Uh, yeah, let's take this episode behind the barn and shoot it. That's my last horse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good to look back on you know 10 15 30 years from now um I, I just saw something on linkedin bill gates was talking about what he got right in his book he wrote like 20 30 years ago awesome. i want to look back on this episode and see like what we got right yeah that'd be cool also you just gave me the idea for my autobiography title what i got right 900 <laughs> pages <laughs> they're all blank that's good you guys you guys are the best danielle this thanks. is fun uh thank you both later guys all right thanks danielle really appreciate it yeah that was fun yeah that was a good episode man yep we'll do our little spiel now we'll but... do we'll do your intro and then they'll put it at the front later and it'll look all cool you want me to sign off yeah bye. yeah you can go all right, bye guys. Have a good one. Later. Later.